Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 2 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes in defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 57 is entitled, The Precious Bane, Part 2. In George Orwell's first novel, Burmese Days, we are introduced to the protagonist, John Flory, in the following way. The first thing that one noticed in Flory was a hideous birthmark stretching in a ragged crescent down his left cheek, from the eye to the corner of the mouth. Seen from the left side, his face had a battered, woe-begone look, as though the birthmark had been a bruise, for it was a dark blue color. He was quite aware of his hideousness, and at all times when he was not alone, there was a side longness about his movements, as he maneuvered constantly to keep the birthmark out of sight. The birthmark governs Flory's perception of himself. Whenever he did anything that he was ashamed of, he thought of his birthmark. Shy by nature, any failure caused him to dwell on his hideous birthmark. By age 35, he was single, friendless, jaded, and disillusioned. The birthmark makes him shy and introverted, especially around women. He takes a mistress and lives a dissolute life, which makes him even more isolated. He is very lonely and wants to marry a European wife. After saving the beautiful Elizabeth Lackerstein from an attack by a water buffalo, he falls in love with her. Still, his hideous birthmark is at the forefront. Rather than looking her in the eye, Flory turned himself sidelong to keep his birthmark cheek away from her, feeling easier when she could not see his face. The birthmark is like a pouncing tiger, always ready to attack when he was vulnerable. For example, during a tense moment, Flory had turned very pale. When he turned pale, the birthmark made him hideously ugly. But that, of course, was only his perception. At any stress, the birthmark stood on his yellow face like a splash of ink. He dismisses his mistress, who becomes very spiteful. One in security, Elizabeth had agreed to marry Flory. However, circumstances intervened that prevented the marriage. Meanwhile, urged by her aunt, Elizabeth fell for a handsome cavalry officer and chose the penniless aristocrat who always lives beyond his means over Flory. However, after the officer had his way with Elizabeth, he abandons her without even saying goodbye. She turns her attention back to Flory. Unfortunately, Flory, who only a brief time before had been a local hero for averting a riot, is publicly humiliated by his former mistress during a European church service. Her explicit details before the congregation horrify Elizabeth. It was not the affair that bothered her. She already knew that he had had a mistress. It was his public humiliation. However, it is the hideous birthmark that reveals Flory's humiliation. He sat, staring fixedly at the altar, his face rigid and so bloodless that the birthmark seemed to glow upon it like a streak of blue paint. It is also the birthmark that turns Elizabeth so violently against Flory. The author said, Elizabeth glanced across the aisle at him, and her revulsion made her almost physically sick. She had not understood a word of what Ma Lei May was saying. But the meaning of the scene was perfectly clear. 
The thought that he had been the lover of that gray-faced, maniacal creature made her shudder in her bones. But worse than that, worse than anything, was his ugliness at this moment. His face appalled her. It was so ghastly, rigid, and old. It was like a skull. Only the birthmark seemed alive in it. She hated him now for his birthmark. She had never known till this moment how dishonoring, how unforgivable a thing it was. After the public humiliation, the contrite Flory clumsily approaches Elizabeth. But regardless of the fact that he had overlooked her affair with the lieutenant, the shallow Elizabeth viciously turns against him and refuses to marry him regardless of these pleading. The author writes, He let her go. It was no use continuing. She was no sooner free of him than she took to her heels and actually ran into the club garden. So hateful was his presence to her. Among the trees she stopped to take off her spectacles and remove the signs of tears from her face. Oh, the beast, the beast, oh, what an unspeakable beast he was. When she thought of his face as it had looked in church, yellow and glistening with the hideous birthmark upon it, she could have wished him dead. It was not what he had done that horrified her. He might have committed a thousand abominations and she could have forgiven him but not after that shameful, squalid scene and the devilish ugliness of his disfigured face in that moment. It was finally the birthmark that had damned him. Elizabeth marries an older man. Following the second rejection, Flory commits suicide, first shooting his faithful dog Flo, who loved him despite all of his weakness, and then shooting himself. In a touch of irony following his suicide, the birthmark had faded immediately so that it was no more than a faint gray stain. A counterpoint to the story of John Flory is the story of Prudent Sarn in Mary Webb's novel entitled, oddly enough, Precious Bane. In Precious Bane, Prudent Sarn is born with a cleft lip and cleft palate. Her disfigurement is far more obvious than the birthmark on Flory's face. The townspeople think she is a witch. Prudence suffers in self-torment and escapes into the countryside, hiding from daily ridicule. Though she is passionately in love with Keister Woodseaves, because of the prominent disfigurement, Prue cannot believe she is worthy of the weaver, who doesn't regard the birthmark at all and genuinely sees the beauty of her character. She tries to dissuade Keister's attention, but Keister's pure love allows Prue to see her own true nature. Falsely accused of murder because of her brother, Prue is saved from the mob by Keister. She finds in Keister the happiness she never thought she deserved because of her deformity. The word bane means a curse or poison, to be murdered by poison, affliction, scourge. Synonyms are poison, plague, bail, scourge, calamity, curse, misery, ruin, destruction, disaster, torment. Precious Bane is an oxymoron, combining priceless, valued, or treasured with something that is poisonous, horrible, or revolting. Oxymoron is a common literary device used in novels and poetry. Describing Tom Sawyer wallowing in self-pity, Twain uses such terms as dismal felicity or pleasurable suffering, against Shakespeare's famous phrase, parting is such sweet sorrow. It raises the issue, how is sorrow sweet? 
How is suffering pleasurable, felicity dismal, or bane precious? What at first appears to prove as a curse turns into a blessing, the antithesis of bane. The journey, however, is a long one because she experiences daily ridicule, horrible attacks, and unjust criticism. In time, because she spends so much time in isolated contemplation, the deformity becomes the source of her spiritual strength. Prue experiences an epiphany in the attic where she spends much of her time. Precious Bane is told in first person. Each image in the following description by Prue symbolizes her feelings. It was a weaving of many threads, with one master thread of clear gold, a very comfortable thing to hear. I thought maybe love was like that, a lot of colored threads and one master thread of pure gold. So it being very still there, with the fair shadows of the apple trees peopling the orchard outside, that was void, as were the near meadows, Gideon, being in the far field making haycocks, which I also should have been doing, there came to me, I cannot tell whence, a most powerful sweetness that had never come to me afore. It was not religious, like the goodness of a text heard at a preaching. It was beyond that. It was as if some creature made all of light had come on a sudden from a great way off and nestled in my bosom. On all things there came a fair, lovely look, as if a different air stood over them. It is a look that seems ready to come sometimes on those gloomy mornings after rain when they say, So fair the day, the cuckoo is going to heaven. Only this was not of the day, but of something beyond it. I cared not to ask what it was, and even now, when Parson says, It was the power of the Lord working in you, I'm not sure in my own mind, for not in it of churches, nor of folks praying or praising, sinning nor repenting, it had to do with such things as birdsong and daffodillies rustling, knocking their heads together in the wind. And it was as willful in its coming and going as a breeze over the standing corn. It was a queer thing, too, that a woman who spent her days in sacking, cleaning styes, and beast housing, living hard, considering over pennies, should come of a sudden into such a marvel as this. For though it was so quiet, it was a great miracle, and it changed my life, for when I was lost for something to turn to, I'd run to the attic, and it was a core of sweetness in much bitter. Though the visitation came but seldom, the taste of it was in the attic all the while. I had but to creep in there and hear the bees making their murmur and smell the woody or sweet scent of kept apples and hear the leaves rasping softly on the window frame and watch the twisted gray twigs on the sky and I'd remember it and forget all else. The roof came down to the floor all around, and all the beams and rafters were oak, and the floor went up and down like stormy water. One evening in October I was sitting there with a rushlight practicing my riding. The moon blocked the little window as if you took a serving tray and held it there. 
All round the walls the apples crowded like the people at a fair wanting to see a marvel. I thought to myself that they ought to be saying one to another, Be still now, hush your noise, give over your jostling. I fell to thinking how all this blessedness of the attic came through me being cursed, for if I hadn't had a hair lip to frighten me into my own lonesome soul, this would never have come to me. The apples would have crowded all in vain to see a marvel, for I should never have known the glory that came from the other side of silence. Even while I was thinking this, out of nowhere suddenly came the lovely thing and nestled in my heart like a seed from the core of love. What to Prue her whole life had appeared to be a curse suddenly became a blessing. It gave her spiritual insight that she could not have had except through suffering. The most touching of all, perhaps, is the scene where Keister, her true love, confirms her true beauty. They are riding together. Tabaron, old nag, says Keister, and we were going at a canter toward the blue and purple mountains. But no, I said, it must be from it, Keister. You must marry a girl like a lily. See, I be hair-sotten, I. But he would not listen. He would not argue. Only after I'd pleaded against myself a long while, he pulled up and looked down into my eyes. He said, No more sad talk. I've chosen my bit of paradise. Tis on your breast, my dear acquaintance. And when he'd said these words, he bent his comely head and kissed me full upon the mouth. The bane that led John Flory to self-destruction led Prue Sam to self-discovery and spiritual awakening. Through sorrow and self-torment she saw inner beauty. Through suffering she discovered her divine nature. The third story, entitled The Birthmark, told by the genius Nathaniel Hawthorne, carries greater irony. Georgiana, the protagonist, has a tiny birthmark on her cheek in the shape of a hand. It is almost invisible. Hawthorne describes the perception that Georgiana has of the birthmark, which is one of complete acceptance and even admiration. He describes the perception of Georgiana's suitors, which is also one of adoration, and the perception of her scientist husband, which is one of total horror. Her entire young adult life, the birthmark, which was very small, almost invisible, became part of her self-esteem, her self-assurance, her identity. However, the fastidiousness and horror that her husband felt because he thought the birthmark tarnished her otherwise perfect beauty led to her death and destruction. For the first time, he made her self-conscious of her deformity. Georgiana, said he, has it never occurred to you that the mark upon your cheek might be removed? No, indeed, said she, smiling. But perceiving the seriousness of his manner, she blushed deeply. To tell you the truth, it has been so often called a charm that I was simple enough to imagine it might be so. Ah, upon another face perhaps it might, replied her husband, but never on yours. No, dearest Georgiana, you came so nearly perfect from the hand of nature that this slightest possible defect, which we hesitate whether to term a defect or a beauty, shocks me, as being the visible mark of earthly imperfection. Shocks you, my husband, cried Georgiana, deeply hurt, at first reddening with momentary anger, but then bursting into tears. Then why did you take me from my mother's side? You cannot love what shocks you. 
Hawthorne continues, In the center of Georgiana's left cheek, there was a singular mark, deeply interwoven, as it were, with the texture and substance of her face. In the usual state of her complexion, a healthy though delicate bloom, the mark wore a tint of deeper crimson, which imperfectly defined its shape amid the surrounding rosiness. When she blushed, it gradually became more indistinct and finally vanished amid the triumphant rush of blood that bathed the whole cheek with its brilliant glow. But if any shifting emotion caused her to turn pale, there was the mark again, a crimson stain upon the snow, in what Almer sometimes deemed an almost fearful distinctness. Its shape bore not a little similarity to the human hand, though of the smallest pygmy size. Georgiana's lovers were wont to say that some fairy at her birth hour had laid her tiny hand upon the infant's cheek and left this impress there, in token of the magic endowments that were to give her such sway over all hearts. However, Georgiana's husband is a scientist and notices every imperfection. He sees the imperfection in Georgiana's face as a curse that science can remove. He, of course, is the one most qualified to remove it. Hawthorne continues, had she been less beautiful, if Envy's self could have found aught else to sneer at, he might have felt his affection heightened by the prettiness of this mimic hand, now vaguely portrayed, now lost, now stealing forth again, and glimmering to and fro with every pulse of emotion that throbbed within her heart. But seeing her otherwise so perfect, he found this one defect grow more and more intolerable. With every moment of their united lives, it was the fatal flaw of humanity, which nature in one shape or another stamps ineffaceably on all her productions, either to imply that they are temporary and finite, or that their perfection must be wrought by toil and pain. The crimson hand expressed the ineludible grip in which mortality clutches the highest and purest of earthly mold, degrading them into kindred with the lowest and even with the very brutes like whom their visible frames return to dust. In this manner, selecting it as the symbol of his wife's liability to sin, sorrow, decay, and death, Almer's somber imagination was not long in rendering the birthmark a frightful object, causing him more trouble and horror than even Georgiana's beauty, whether of soul or sense, had given him delight. Of course, the curse is only in the mind of the scientist. He sees horror, where Georgiana and everyone else saw beauty. It wasn't remotely like the birthmark that dominated the left side of Flory's face or the cleft palate that so tormented Prue. The birthmark on Georgiana was almost imperceptible, merely a hint that came and went like a will-o'-the-wisp. And anyone else but the fastidious scientist, it was a thing of beauty. Georgiana, however, only wanted to please her husband, though she knows that removing the birthmark is not like removing a mole or a wart. It is part of her soul and will bring her destruction. Following the operation, she falls into a coma. As she comes out, she says to her foolish husband, My poor Almer, she repeated, with more than human tenderness, You have aimed loftily. You have done nobly. Do not repent that with so high and pure a feeling you have rejected the best the earth could offer. Almer, dearest Almer, I am dying. Alas, it was too true. The fatal hand had grappled with the mystery of life and was the bond by which an angelic spirit kept itself in union with a mortal frame. The scientist was not able to entirely remove the birthmark. However, just as Flory's birthmark became invisible at death, 
and Prue's deformity was virtually invisible to Keister, who adored Prue, Georgiana's birthmark also faded from her face as her spirit left her body. Hawthorne recorded, As the last crimson tint of the birthmark, that sole token of human imperfection, faded from her cheek, the parting breath of the now perfect woman passed into the atmosphere, and her soul, lingering a moment near her husband, took its heavenward flight. Hawthorne concludes the drama with, Then a hoarse, chuckling laugh was heard again. Thus ever does the gross fatality of earth exult in invariable triumph over the immortal essence, which in this dim sphere of half-development demands the completeness of a higher state. Yet, had Almer reached a profounder wisdom, he need not thus have flung away the happiness which would have woven his mortal life of the self-same texture with the celestial. The momentary circumstance was too strong for him. He failed to look beyond the shadowy scope of time and live in once for all in eternity to find the perfect future in the present. There are many stories in the Holy Bible that show how out of weakness comes great strength. The story of David, a shepherd boy who slays Goliath. The story of John, who banished to the Isle of Patmos, writes the prophetic history of the world that he sees through vision. The story of the twelve apostles, who were ordinary fishermen or publicans or doctors. The stories of Rebecca, Ruth, and Esther. Nor should we overlook the stories found in great literature, or great biographies that depict greatness out of suffering, triumph out of oppression. The story of King Arthur, the story of Abraham Lincoln, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the life of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington. There are so many other inspiring stories of silent heroes, but I never travel to the outer banks of North Carolina that on the way I do not stop at Edenton, the birthplace of Harriet Jacobs. I recommend her autobiography, Instance in the Life of a Slave Girl. Her heroic story will remove all self-pity. But another pilgrimage I like to take is on my way to Orlando. I stop at Eatonville, Florida, the home of Zora Neale Hurston. Eatonville is the setting for one of my favorite novels, Their Eyes Were Watching God. She was a scholar, and I love Hurston's novels, essays, and stories. Having a brilliant mind, she observed life through the objective eye of a scientist. She died in obscurity, in poverty, and is buried in an unmarked grave, but her legacy will never die. Often circumstances decide what ravages our body, but we alone decide what ravages our soul. Satan's entire goal is to bring us down into captivity and misery. He is the destroyer, and those who try to steal our liberty are his disciples. Satan has enormous power, and often we are assaulted by the fiery darts of the wicked. Satan does not have power over free will or over agency. That we must give away. We may not always be able to remove the chains that bind our bodies, but we can always remove the chains that bind our souls. He may bind our bodies, but he cannot, without our permission, bind our hearts, our minds, or our spirits. Satan's henchmen may come at us with physical power, Christ said, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. There is no armor of man that can penetrate the whole armor of God. Truth, righteousness, preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
God bless all who inspire us with precious Spain. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.